what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Yes, Pat. I can't help but notice you have a new puppy out there. I do have a new puppy. Have you thought about getting some expert advice on how to raise that puppy? Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it just happens that we do have an expert as part of our sponsor group. Really? Yeah, Dan Croft Canine. Do they run puppy class? They run amazing puppy classes. What what on earth do they do there? They've got whole ranges of foundation for puppy school. So they're running a complete socialization package and they're doing a whole range of different levels for puppies. And that's what they really wanted to emphasize is that they are experts in puppy raising and training. Where are they experts in puppy raising and training? In Toronto, Canada. Whoa. So if you were in Toronto, Canada, and you had a friend, a client, a relative, just anybody who was getting a puppy Mm -hmm. and you wanted to set that puppy up for success, you could probably send them to Dancroft, can I? If I was over in Toronto, Canada with my new little Rottweiler puppy, Mando, I would go over, and I'm, I swear this, I would go over and I would do the socialization program with them. Great I idea. love what they're doing. Have you seen their setup online? Oh, amazing. Fantastic. Amazing. They had a tire with a medicine ball with a pit bull doing a drop stay on top of it. My goodness. Amongst a dozen other dogs that were doing all similar things, like on BOSU balls and all sorts of things. My goodness. It was great. Fantastic. Unbelievable. Yeah. Hey, speaking of your puppy, mm-hmm. what's going on with his nutrition? Couldn't go past canine tuticles. Supplemented up. Supplemented up to the help. My goodness. Yeah. So he should have arms like Arnold Schwarzenegger by the time we're finished. Where did you get those canineceuticals from? From Narelle Cook. Narelle Cook. Yeah. How, do you, how do you know her? <laughs> <laughs> Funny that she's got the same last name as me. Yeah. The supplier is very local. Absolutely. Canineceuticals, but ha- legit, it's probably the best supplements available. Best for supplements dog. available, human grade, gone through the absolute rigorous testing program. I mean, Narelle's got stat sheets on it and everything like that on demand, so... People want to know what they're actually putting into their dog's body supplement-wise. They can reach out to her and she's got all the facts and figures before she even put it down as a physical product. She spent years and years researching it before it was actually come to market. So great stuff. Yes, the puppy's definitely on it. All our dogs are on it. And there's a shit ton of people around Australia and New Zealand who are taking caninecuticals and the feedback is astronomical. Amazing. Yep. Do you plan on taking Mando on your motorbike? If I did, you know who I'd have to go to, don't you? You'd have to get one of those Rowdy Hound boxes. Rowdy Hound dog kennels. Yeah. From Horny George. George Kittridge himself. You'd have to get one of those Rowdy Hound dog kennels to go on the back of your motorbike. How good is his social media? It's the best. Yeah. I love watching the dogs cruise around motorbikes. I think it's one of the coolest things ever. They've got their little doggles on. Yeah. You know, like we talk about living the best life. Well, for people who are motorcyclists, they can do both. I'm serious about thinking about getting one, but then I've got to train a – I don't know if having a Rottweiler on the back of a bike is going to be a great <laughs> idea. Your sport but, bike. <laughs> but, well, uh, I think you should do it. Maybe one day when I've got a smaller mid-sized dog, uh, I would get a Rowdy Hound dog kennel and mm. I could travel around so I could not only enjoy the company of my dog, which hundreds of people seem to be doing across the United States of America, and I could motorcycle at the same time. So Amazing. two things that are very dear to my heart coming together. All right. This ad's going on for a long time. Mm. I need to get out of here and go and train some dogs. Yep. But do you know where I got the equipment that I'm going to use to train those dogs? The goat. 
The goat. The Billy Goat's gruff. Mine's a wiener. <laughs> <laughs> the wiener himself. <laughs> Ironswick Dog Quip. Yep. If you're not buying all your dog training gear from them, yep. I don't know where you're fucking getting it from. Well, if not from Thurman, Ironswick Dog Quip, the Irons a wiener. How the hell does he sell anything being such a grumpy old bastard? He's online now. He's got a website. That's you right. Can, they don't have to deal with him. You correct. can actually buy things <laughs> off the website. You can actually do it now. Yep. IronswickDogQuip.com.au yep. or just .com. Probably one of them. I don't it's know. One of them. It just, we'll put try it out. Notes. Yeah, put it, you, yeah, you'll click. You'll find a link. You buy some stuff. <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host Glenn Cook. How are you, sir? I'm wonderful. I had a good week in Canberra. Yeah. Red I know team. We, yeah, Red Team. I know we talked a little bit about it in the kitchen before we turned the mics on, as we always usually do. We have a little bit of a pre-show banter. Mm-hmm. But I did have a really good time. It was long and arduous as it is. Big days, long days. But a couple of reasons why it was good. Number one, it gives me a break from my normal day-to-day thing, so it doesn't become just a wash of the same tasks over and over again. I get to do cool dog stuff with boys, so we get to hang out and do all the fun stuff. I really enjoy the company of Q and Coey. Mm-hmm. We always have a good time. They're mm-hmm. great blokes and they're very, very accommodating. Mm-hmm. Poor old Q was really sick this time around. He had the, didn't have COVID, but he had a flu version. So he worked very hard to recover. He's been pretty tapped out lately. Mm-hmm. Both the boys are pretty busy, but yeah, it was good to hang out with them. It was nice to be with them. Canberra was cold. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. It's so cold. Yeah. It's like, horrible. Yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> I just don't know how anyone can enjoy living in Canberra. <laughs> It's there cold. goes our Canberra audience. It's a beautiful city. Driving around Canberra, it's just so well organised. It's so well structured. Everything is nicely laid out, not like Sydney, which is just a bomb site trying to make do. Well, with- I mean, Canberra was built for a purpose. With purpose, yes. yes. Whereas it's Sydney our nation's just grew. capital. Yeah. Canberra, they just went like, let's put a city there and call it the capital. Let's go halfway between Sydney and Melbourne. But, but they planned it. Like yeah. They planned it for future development, which yeah. is really cool. Like I said, it's a nice city. We had a couple of rainy days, but most of the days were sunny and well lit. So it's a beautiful city. You know, like we went out for a couple of times. One of the guys who runs the unit, him and I have become close personal friends. Oh, yeah. Kirsto. He's a great bloke. It was his birthday there, so we went out and had burgers with all the guys and uh, had a few beers and so forth. So good bond-building experience. Great to see the guys from the regions coming in. Mm -hmm. Their national director, Holmesy, he's a really good guy as well. Like He's really fighting for the guys, Mm -hmm. trying to get funds for them. Here's something I want to say before we actually get into the meat of our podcast, and I know you understand this well because you're a sworn person in services working for the government for many, many years, whereas I am not, and I never have been. I've never been government appointed in any role. I've always been private or corporate or whatever. Mm. The guys in a lot of these dog units, I'm not just talking about AFP, I'm talking about AFP, state police, military, border force, all that. Like they really need access to better equipment and and more of it. Mm. The brass up the top, the pen pushes, they need to support their guys much better. Mm. Like if they go to them and say, we need some mills, instead of them going, oh, it's not the budget this year, they need to look at it and say, yeah, you do. Mm. You need a couple of mills in each of your divisions. They just need to be better supportive. Like even going back to Madura Park to work at the AFP, 
There's been some significant improvements there. They've extended their training facilities there. Holmesy's done a good job and so has Kirsto. You know, like they really fight for their boys. They really try and get them what they need to move into the new areas of operations that they need to do. While we were there, the ABC did a little skit on some of their new development. So it's not like I can't talk about it or anything like that because they're Mm. getting into cell phone and and SIM card detection things. So Mm -hmm. the improvements that they've got, have all been fought for and justified by Holmesy and Kirsto. Like they've really pushed for the boys to say, you need it and you have to have it. Their head trainer there at Canberra is a guy called Ricey. So they're all hardworking guys. They mm. really do a good job. And, and it's a great place. I love the kennel set up there. I love the training facility there. And I enjoy going there. It's a good time to get things done. And also to see the guys come back from the regions. So, you know, we had, I think we had Gold Coast, Melbourne, Sydney, Canberra, we had, you know, like people from all around the the regions come down and to see them so enthusiastic, they're very proud of their work, they love it and to see the dogs picking up the odours quickly was really great. All around it was a very enjoyable experience. So Mm. always look forward to going out there. I hate the weather but I love the experience of going out there and working with those guys. Yeah. I think one of the things I do appreciate, you know, police and military kind of work that I get to do Yeah, because I enjoy working with people who are very capability focused yep. and they're not doing it for fun. It's not an ego thing. Yeah. Like dog sport is all ego, right? Like it's mm. fun, but nobody needs it, to it, have any titles on their dog. There's egos in this, but it's healthy ego. Yeah, like it's yeah. in check. Oh, it's competition yeah. Yeah, amongst themselves. But yeah. I think it's a lot of fun when you work towards you know, like operational focus. That's mm. one of the things that you don't really get. And a lot of people, you know, very few people in the dog world will ever get to experience that when mm. you work towards a true operational focus, which is, you know, like we need this dog to be working the streets. What's the most cost-effective, efficient, maintainable method in order to do that? Yeah, And it's going to be very interesting, I think, to see what happens in police and military units as tool bands become more of a thing around the world and they get enforced upon them. Terrifying. That's, yeah. that's the one word I will say. That's yeah. terrifying. So, you know, especially the general duties dogs. Yeah. I'm not sure how much I can say about, but years ago within the army, mm. the in SOCOM, in special operations, someone, you know, the good ideas fairy struck on someone and they put a stop, stop, stop on using e-collars, right? I won't say who it was, but it was, it's a person you know. And yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. And so the SOCOM guys just said, well, then we, we don't have a capability. We're not doing it. And <laughs> so this person just said, no one's allowed to use e-collars wearing the rank of major and not having actually provided any capability to anybody or actually ever you know, really having any understanding of the downrange effects of his order. And so the people who were controlled by that just said, oh, right, okay, well, then we no longer have a dog capability because we use our e-collars in a way that you don't understand mm. and we cannot employ these dogs without it and, and it's unsafe to do so. So shut down our multi-million dollar capability. Yep. And then went to Sokos, the general in charge, and said, mate, we no longer have a capability because this guy said that we're unable to do it. This guy who doesn't understand what we do couldn't do what we did if his life actually depended on it, mm. has said that we're not allowed to do it anymore. Sokos just said, oh, he's fired. <laughs> you guys get back to work. Yep. Right? And so those days are numbered because that was an internal thing. But you look at, say, and, and I don't want to harp on about it. We've been talking about it nonstop, but it's mm. in the ether of the dog world, is uh, you look at, say, what's happened in Queensland – if that law goes through, which I'm pretty confident it's not going to, but, you know, who knows, whatever, mm. it's under the guise of cruelty, right? So 
I think a lot of police and military or people think that the police and military will get an exemption for these sorts of things. And in some cases they do, but you imagine like in Australia here, you can't have a semi-automatic rifle. I mean, you can, it's very, very difficult, but the average person can't have a a semi-automatic rifle, but we allow the police to have it. And we say that in the hands of a normal person, that's unnecessary, but they have cause for having it, Mm. right? And they have training, education, the capability to store and maintain that. So it's okay for their, they're checked, all these things. It's totally fine for them to have automatic weapons, but the average civilian has no use for that. And I think a lot of people think that that's the kind of thing that will happen with e-collars and prong collars and the tools Mm. that you use to train these dogs. You look and say, well, there's no education. They're being banned for civilians to use. But because we have courses, we have structure, we know all these things about it, we're trained in it, we have specific use cases, we'll be able to continue to use those. And it's like, well, actually, it's being banned because the claim is that it's cruel. And so if it's banned because it's thought of as being cruel and inherently cruel, Mm -hmm. right, can only be cruel, it's not like you guys are going to be allowed to be cruel to your dogs, right? And so I think that's one of the interesting things going forward is I think the pushback from those guys has to come and a lot of them aren't actually involved in the space. Like it's their job. Maybe they listen to us. Some of them, the more like the more sort of really into it and who people who are sort of into it beyond it just being their job. But for the most part, they're not in the communities and they don't necessarily see the way that those tools are on the chopping block. Are you talking about the brass, like the people up the top? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. they're totally disconnected to it. And they're more interested in being a a politician's pet than anything else. And that's the problem. That's one of the points that I wanted to highlight before is how in the pocket they've got to be of these greasy politicians who are only custodians of popularity. Yeah. I'm not flicking shit at these people. They've got to stay relevant themselves. And the only way that they can control their job and at least be relevant in their position is by being kept by these ministers. Yeah. And my God, some of these people are just monstrous. Yeah. And they're the ones that are withholding budgets and, you know, like for them to look good, they've got to come back and say, oh, yes, my department's in order. Yeah. They just really rape their coffers sometimes. But I think it's interesting times. I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens going forward, certainly in this country, as the progression towards no tools training continues, how that will affect people who have real working dogs. I think when that conversation comes up, there's a lot of you know, people like, well, it can be done. Look at these people. And I'm like, no, it certainly can. And with a certain type of dog and a certain level of trainer, there are certain things you can achieve mm. on a certain timeline, but those are not realistic. So, you know, very often when people sort of say, well, you know, look at this person who trains a very powerful dog in a sport or whatever, and they get used as a the example of what is achievable without tools, we say, well, first of all, that person is a legitimate expert, Mm. right, has a skill set beyond what is replicatable by the average person. So that is difficult there. They have a timeline that is their own, right? They have the ability to just say, well, my dog will be ready for competition in four years because Mm. that's how long it's going to take me to train these skill sets. They have the ability to recycle, like get rid of their dog. They can you know, say, this dog doesn't fit my program. It's not suitable for me. They can blame the dog. They can blame their program if they're you know, open about that. Very few are, but they can move the dog on and say, this isn't going to work out. Mm. Get a new one where the, the services don't necessarily have that luxury. A lot of the traits of a dog that would make it suitable to go into service that way would you know, also make it you know, very difficult to be trained that mm-hmm. way. And I think one of the the really interesting things is, and what people don't take into account is 
Imagine a dog that has been trained on an e-collar and a prong collar or, you know, whatever tool. And it's, you know, it's been trained that way and it's a three-year-old dog and it's just hit service. It probably cost a lot of money. It's got a long life and career ahead of it. It's going to perform really well on the street. If you just take the tools off that dog, it can't continue to perform, right? Mm -hmm. So the people who successfully do bring a dog into that level of training, that level of capability... They do so with an extremely high skill set. I'm talking the people that people, you know, I won't say any names, but the people, the names that people throw out, they have an unreplicatable skill set. They've been at this for 30 years and are, you know, phenomenal at doing it and choose to do it without tools. So it's like, okay, yes, they can do it, but that's not replicatable by the average person. Can I just add a point here too, is that some of their dogs would be unsuitable for service work. Of course. Yeah. That can't be overlooked. Yeah. Yeah. There's that. And like I say, the time frame that they can bring it into, but also the raising of a dog that is going to go into high performance work and be expected to engage in combat, like actually fight a person. The raising of that is very particular. And the way that you're going to train that dog is very different to the way that you would train a dog that you also are going to have to do the same job, but you're going to use tools to do it. Right. Mm. So I wouldn't say it's impossible that you could raise, train, and hit the streets with a dog that is trained without tools. Like, of course, it's possible. It's not ideal. You shouldn't do it. I don't think it's a smart move by anyone. And I think that there are some people that say that they can train a dog to hit the streets force-free, right? Like purely positive. Mm -hmm. And to those people, mostly they're lying fucks that would say that because they're just trying to win a popularity game. But if they are truthful, if they say that and they actually have not used any pressure on the dog – then I would say you've not adequately prepared that dog for the street. Mm -hmm. Like that's my big concern. Like if you, most of them are liars, so it's not true. But if there are any that really truly think I've prepared this dog, it's never learned to counter and work through pressure and I'm going to send it on the streets and it and its handler are going to go out and encounter real bad guys. You've set that handler up to get killed. You've set that dog up to have a horrendous experience and that handler up to be potentially killed. I just need to interject there quickly. As a person who has done years of street work with dogs and worked in some really dark places in Melbourne, I fucking wouldn't appreciate that position being put upon me. Yeah. That would terrify me thinking of what I had to endure and the level of preparedness that I needed to have, not only just myself, but my dog as well, to come home from some of those situations. Like, I'm not trying to make this sound any more daunting than what it needs to be. It was some terrifying situations. There were literally nights where I thought, I'm not going to make it out of this. Mm. And if my dog didn't have the skill set and the capabilities that he did have, I'd be fucked. Like, I just would not be able to walk out of those situations. So I dare anyone to confront me on that situation because I've done years and years and years of hard slog on the street with dogs in tumultuous situations where gangs have been fighting, where I've been involved in crazed people, people have tried to run me over in cars, all sorts of shit, like crazy people, you know, that are getting out, they're drug affected, they're intoxicated, they're angry, they're fucked up, whatever it is. The mere fact that I'm still here today was like largely thanks to Harley and his endurance and perseverance in these issues, Mm. but he was very well prepared for that. Yeah. And take away and rob him of the use of tools over that and not being able to uh, allow him to understand what pressures he would be faced with. We're talking about welfare to dogs. What about fucking welfare to the people who are on the the streets dealing with this sort of shit? But there's no consideration here at this point in time. People are just obsessed with thinking about dog welfare only. Well, I'm telling you now, 
there are literally people in service, like private and sworn, that are going to be literally fucked over by this whole thing. Yeah. As you said before, one of your colleagues pointed out there is no capability. Well, the same is applied for the rest of these people. There yeah. is no capability. Yeah, that's right. So I think that, like, you know, say in that circumstance you talk about, Harley, like, for people who don't understand, like, a prong collar is not going to help prepare a dog to work on the street. It's going to give you the ability to control a dog on the street. Mm. But what it is going to do is that like the idea that people think that you can raise a dog like that without the dog ever experiencing pressure, it just doesn't work. Like Mm. as a decoy that develops dogs like that, the whole point is like incremental doses of pressure that you harden the dog to the point where the dog, when it's confronted by someone who really is going to hurt it and wants to hurt it, that it's like, oh no, I've never lost a fight in my life. Yeah. Yeah. I've been taught by someone, the dog doesn't realize, he doesn't think this, but he's like, no, I can overcome anything. I, mm. I've, I've overcome everything I've ever faced before. That's where the people who say, oh, you can raise a dog force free. It's like, you can't because if you, if you don't do that, then it's not going to be prepared for the street. You might be able to teach it all the skills over a long enough timeline with a high enough skill set and with the right kind of dog. For sure, you can give it all the right skill sets that it will need, mm. but you can't prepare it to be in a fight with someone unless it's been in other fights with people. It's, right? it's got to understand that. I mean, it's the same thing with boxing or MMA. Unless yeah. you've done years of experience and conditioning in sparring and felt what it's like to be kicked in the shin or punched in the chops or something like that, there's no way you're going to survive in that ring. You'll get in there and you'll just be mauled in seconds. Yeah. But if you're conditioned to it and you understand what it feels like and you understand how to counter that and move around it, you have conditioning, you have preparedness, you have an understanding of what's realistic and how to defend yourself in that situation. Yeah. And a large part of offense is defense. Yeah. I got a comment sent to me during the week and it was a part of a conversation. It wasn't just a singled out comment, but One part that I was concerned about was the person said to me, you seem to be fixated on the use of training tools. I'm not fixated on it at all. In fact, I'm minimalistic about it. The preparation to the use of training tools is to minimize the use of it to get to the dog, which you and I were just talking about, to get the dog to the point where the dog says, like a child with training wheels says, I don't need this anymore. I I have full preparedness now. I understand you. I get it. I know what I'm going to be faced with. This is only as required from here on in. That's interesting you say that, and I want to come back to that. But just to close out my thought before is Mm. that imagine it were possible to raise, train, and prepare for the street a dog using no tools. Wonderful. Cool. And certainly there are people that do it, and there are dogs that are capable of it. I I don't deny that. But they're still unicorns. They're very rare. Yep. But what do we do with the three-year-old dog that has been raised using those tools and can't be managed without him who just started his career? Like what happens to him when the the tools are taken off? Because the control mechanisms aren't in place and that dog's been raised to be handled that particular way. What happens to him? And and that's the question I have for a lot of the animal welfare people who like want to ban the tools and stop like police and military using them. It's like, okay, it is possible to completely restructure the whole thing and the capability will have to change drastically and the amount of money we spend and the wastage of dogs will be astronomical. And the the issue will be the dogs that we put into the wastage pile are going to be dangerous motherfuckers. Mm. And I don't know what we do with those anymore because like we can't put those out to anybody else to be handled because they're also not allowed the tools. And so what happens? But that's a future problem. The right now problem is what do I do with this dog who absent these tools is dangerous Mm. and it's not his fault. We've raised him to be that way because that's the correct way to do it. Right. So 
I don't think that gets thought through. And to circle back just quickly to what you're saying then about people, yeah, and, and I'm sick of fucking talking about it. This is the probably fourth episode where we've had to open talking about this shit, but it's because we're constantly having to defend this. It's nonstop. It's and not just so, the defense of it. It's the blowout that it's going to have. Like yeah. when you look at the overreach this is going to have into yeah. not just our little circle, but circles all over in yeah. any community that this starts to blow out. And the topic that keeps creating a point of arousal for me is welfare. Yeah. We speak of welfare, but there really isn't a consideration of welfare for the handlers or for certain types of dogs. Because as you said, what happens to these dogs? Well, in my opinion, this becomes the magician's sleight of hand when they say, don't look at my left hand, look at my right hand. Yeah. You know, I don't want you to see what's going on my left hand because that's where the illusion is taking place. Yeah. You need to look over here where the magic is happening. Yeah. Well, that's going to happen to these dogs. Like they're just going to vanish. Yes. This is like the fourth episode we've yeah. had to open talking about this stuff, but you know, it was just a couple of days ago that the submissions for fighting the band of the prong collar in Queensland closed. Brittany and Kirsty and Marsha did an amazing job. Yeah, right. I don't know. We need to get a trophy made and give it to them. You know, some kind of recognition because the amount of work they put into that selflessly is incredible. Absolutely. And, and who knows what will happen with that. I was tracking that as much as I possibly could and being involved in it. Those girls took the charge, but I was on the peripheries and you're offering whatever support I could. And we're talking about it, raising awareness and the petition got a ton of signatures and blah, blah, blah. And then that comes to an end, the submissions close. And it's like, you feel like, oh, okay, well, what will be, will be there. We've done the best that we possibly can. Everybody came together really well. Everybody's done the best they can congratulations, let's move on with our lives. Mm. And then boom, suddenly some lady from the APDT in the most condescending way talks about how they're enforcing Lima, which she clearly does not understand. Mm -hmm. And that anybody who wants to use tools can give them money, but have no say in the progression of the industry as they see it. But the way that she put it was so condescending and infers that it's your lack of education is the reason why you're using these tools and that you should continue to join the APDT to maybe up your skills and education. Mm. And it's like, excuse me, If we're going to talk about who has a lack of education here, it's not me. It's not the people who are saying that using the full spectrum of motivation is the problem. It's the people who are discounting. I can explain how to use positive reinforcement very effectively. And I can also explain how to use negative reinforcement and punishment very effectively. If you can't explain to me how to use them effectively, because they work, it's whether you want to do them or not is totally fine. But if Mm. you can't explain to me how they work then your opinion on them is fucking irrelevant. And so it's just a constant battle, man. I know people are sick of us talking about it. I'm fucking sick of having to talk about it. I know, but the problem is, is this never goes away. No. And that's the problem is that you've got a sleepless enemy that just keeps on persevering with this all the time. Hey, let me ask you, I guess in your role being a commando and regarded as a peace officer, were you educated in the use of force continuum? Of course. Most agencies are. You know, private or government agencies are, are educated in the use of force continuum. And the use of force continuum, for those who don't know, literally starts with the presence of somebody. Let's say, for example, anything is happening. And in your case, it could be groups of angry villagers being around and your unit moves in and it either makes them move away or they just mm-hmm. disperse. Same thing with security or police, like if you've got an offender in the area or you've got a bunch of kids or something that are being a bit reckless, it just calls for you just to walk over or even just to stand in an area, 
peacefully and just disperse. It Usually they will disperse on their own. If they see you and they think, oh, yeah, let's not cause trouble, let's just move on. It goes all the way through and there are escalation points. Like if they do this, you need to be a step ahead of them and you need to do this. It goes all the way to potential use of lethal force, which in that case means firearms. It never calls for that. It never tells you that's what you must do. But this is a process in the use Mm -hmm. of force continuum. Imagine somebody just says, hey, guys, guess what? We're going to take your firearms away from you, your dogs and your battens, and you're just going to have to use mean words and fisticuffs on people who have got knives, battens, guns, clubs, dogs as well. And good luck because we don't believe it anymore. We just think that it's not the right thing to do. Now, funnily enough, this sort of thing is actually happening around the world because I've had to, well, I've seen discussions taking place in this where people are going, well, what about UK police? Because they don't have firearms. And I'm thinking, but there's a range of problems related to that too. Yeah. Like as- A soldier got his head cut off out the front of his fucking unit. Literally. Yeah. Because he couldn't defend himself against a machete-wielding crazed yeah. person. That guy doesn't get to go home to his family anymore. No. On the other spectrum of that, they're saying, well, what about these police in other parts of the world that are just too gun happy? There's always going to be problems with people. There's always going to be problems with dogs. There's always going to be problems with the use of tools in the wrong hands. But we're talking about tools in the wrong hands. We're not talking about tools in the right hands. We're not talking about the minimalistic use of it. What we need to talk more about, and this is where Lima comes into it, and this is why I want to associate it with the use of force continuum, because Lima is very similar to that. It's the least invasive, minimally aversive technique in training. Yeah. It talks about an escalation point as required. Yeah. And then when you don't need to, you de-escalate, like you go back down the other way yeah. as required. It talks about the use of sliding up or sliding down as you see fit as a technical advisor or a proficient user of the use of force to look at it and saying, what needs to happen here to make this situation resolve itself? Mm. Then people, of course, will come back to the point and saying, well, that relies on having the right person with the right amount of training. My answer to that is fucking exactly. Exactly. Let's provide the training. Let's provide the training. Let's stop skipping around this point and let's provide the training. Let's make it a training point. This is what we're trying to do. This is what we're trying to get people to wake up to this cause, to stop saying, let's ban things. Let's just take things off the table completely and deal with the other cascading problem that's going to explode from that. Let's just say it's a people problem. Let's fix the people who are the problem. Yeah. Mm. And yes, I agree with you. It's frustrating. I've literally had a couple of nights where I've lost many hours of sleep being woken up in the middle of the night thinking about this. Yeah. Like thinking these poor fucking dogs, these poor handlers, there's no consideration for them. Yeah. Mate, that's the issue. And and I know people are sick of it. And like I say, I'm sick of talking about it, but- it just feels like it's this nonstop barrage mm. of people who really just don't understand the implications of what they're saying. And and I get it. They generally mean well. Although that lady from the APDT, she exposes herself. And I'm happy to talk about it. I'm sure someone will send it to her. But you watch the way her face changes when she thinks she's finished recording and she goes to hit stop. You see who she really is there. I haven't watched it that intently. Mate, you have a watch. Okay. You see who she is. And the condescending way in which she explains their new spiel. Mate, it's very concerning. It's very, very troubling. And I don't think that animal welfare really is at the core of what they're worried about. Well, one thing that I feel is more troubling is the way that they resolve the issue is take away the voice of other people to come in and say, we need to talk about this and we need to have some healthy debate where they say, well, sorry, your membership doesn't cover that. You're not entitled to do that. Yeah, that That's is, their plan. That, that in itself is quite sinister. Yeah. Mm. But it's, um, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I guess we should talk about 
other stuff. Yeah, <laughs> something else. We got a question here. Mm-hmm. Chrissy Sparrow, temperament tests, puppies versus adult dogs. Yep. What do you got to say about that, sir? We have talked about puppies and temperament test in earlier episodes, but it's always a good one to bring up because people have been messaging me nonstop, as I'm sure they have with Sweats lately, which is Jazz Whiting. Mm-hmm. She's done a really good job with the two shepherds you guys were raising and training, and mm-hmm. now she's got the two males. And I've just taken on a little Roddy puppy that I got from a lovely lady who I'm going to mention on the show, Lisa Chin from mm-hmm. Stambakai Rottweilers. And the reason I want to give a shout out to her is because she was very interested in upskilling her position of what she knew about how to bring up puppies. Even though she's been breeding for years, she was still happy to take on advice. She rang myself. We had conversations. She spoke to Narelle about nutrition, feeding, diet, everything that needed to happen because she really wanted to do the right thing. She was really excited about me taking on one of her pups. And so far, he's been fantastic. Mm. Like he's freakishly unbelievable as a pup. You put him away at night, even from the first night we've got him. No carrying on. Oh, really? I'm serious, mate. I cannot believe what a weirdo he is in these matters. Yeah. Did she prep him that way? Did she she crate train him prior to you getting him? She didn't separate them, but she was doing so much environmental enrichment and exposure to those pups. Like, they were literally anything that you could think of for little pups. Like, they were exposed to it. Noise. Like, she was playing every kind of sound effect to prepare them for the environments that they could possibly be in. Crowds, airports, any sound effect. Thunder, lightning, every... Not lightning, but thunder. She had them in the can pits like most people do, which is good. She had them on wobbly surfaces. And just to expand from that, I just said, look, get tarps and get weird things to make them run on different things. Like, let them feel funny shit beneath their feet. So she went out and did it. She went out and spent hundreds of dollars in preparing this little area out in the front of a yard where she had A-frames and wobbly boards, everything that you could think of. When I went there, there was a couple of boys that I looked at and it was hard to pick apart who I was going to take. And she was even kind enough to say, if you want to take two and raise both and then take the best one on and bring it back to me, etc." I just thought, wow, that is incredibly generous of a breeder to do that. But we just developed a really good relationship with her. And I mean, I've got some great relationships with other people like Neville Bennett. He's done great jobs with his dogs. And Mm -hmm. I use these people as examples when we're talking about environmental enrichment, bringing puppies up, socialization, habituation, the whole process, the whole gamut of raising puppies, Mm -hmm. because it's, it's, it's extremely important. Yeah. Like you and I have literally filled a whole series of podcasts about the importance of mm-hmm. building the combination of socialization and habituation, mm. ultimately get to a generalization component. So Chrissy asked specifically about temperament tests though. So when you go there, you cut away half because you want a male, yep. right? So yep. what did you do to choose him? What was it that you observed in him that you thought he's the one and the other one isn't? Yeah, good question. I've been asked that question from a lot of people. I think Luke Badman sent me a question about it. Panos was asking me as well. They talk about it on their podcast, those sort of Mm -hmm. same sort of things. What I was looking for was obviously boldness, Mm -hmm. which is also could be descriptive as confidence as well. I want to see a level of independence from the puppy as well. Friendliness, confidence, endurance. I was also interested in the one who would stay on the predatory items as long as they possibly could, mm-hmm. which was Mando by a country so, mile. So you took a rag or yeah something and played it around in front of them, or how did you determine yeah, that? Yeah, Lisa had all that. So she had flirt poles and rags and pillowcases. 
cases and she had a burlap sack full of cans that she'd just drag around and Mando would just hang off it and literally slide all over the place. He was the only one who just wouldn't let go. Okay. For me, that was obviously, that was- Yeah, okay. So that's the the biggest portion of your decision-making was that his prey drive was His prey drive was high, but he had it all. The other pup that we looked at, which was quite good, he was a greedier puppy, which I love greediness too. I Mm -hmm. love food drive, Mm -hmm. greedy, greedy puppies, because obviously the greedier they are, the easier they are to lure and Mm -hmm. train. Mando's not- fantastic with that. He's getting better. Okay. Narelle's been doing quite a few things with him feeding wise to improve that. Mm-hmm. He is getting better. Funnily enough, I was really impressed by him. He's a smart dog. He's a good thinker. He's a little problem solver. I took him out to do the NDTF just so I could show them him and give him exposure. I've been doing can curtains, which has been great because he just runs at them and jumps into them. And Lisa prepared him for all that. I've been backing it up. He's got no fear of anything like that. Right. Like you shake a can curtain and bottles at him, he's running at you with his tail up and he's excited by it. Like he loves it. And I got to show all the students that and they were just like blown away. And I am too. Like, I'm really impressed that he's such a little puppy and he doesn't shy. Like, he doesn't look at it and stand off and then decide, oh, now I'll come mm-hmm. over gingerly. Like, he's bolting at you to come over. Mm-hmm. The other thing I was really impressed of, Lisa started doing clicker training, so she got a little bit of acquisition yep. in him. We hadn't followed up for a while. I was letting him go until his food drive picked up a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I took him out, revisited his acquisition. He picked it up really quickly. Within a couple of hours, he was head checking every time I clicked and come running over and took the food. By day four, we had the light down, which is part of the NDTF skill. They have to learn to press a light or Mm. pick a dumbbell up. By day four, I already had him tapping the light with his foot. They got to see it live. Shame I didn't film it. I was too busy doing the work. But the great thing is, is they got to see an 11-week-old pup Mm -hmm. from the very start within four days going over and visibly tapping the light with his foot. Mm -hmm. So not only was I impressed, like that's great for me to see because I can see that he's intelligent. He picks things up quickly. He's problem solving fast. And these are things that I look for in puppies as well. Like When I'm looking for a puppy, I want a problem solver. I want a confident pup. I want a pup that's You know, like it's got the smarts, he's got the attributes and the bonus things that I'm getting, which is just unfounded is like, he doesn't fucking sook and cry and scream when he's away at night. Sure. He wants to come out and there's sometimes where you'll sit there and whinge a little bit, like I'm not ready for bed. And then within five minutes, he's literally turning around and going back to bed Mm. and people say, well, he is whinging and squealing, but not like other puppies. Like for argument's sake, Macho would literally wail the house down, you know, like when he didn't want to go away. He was just like one of those babies. What what do you think drives that? Where's that come from? And what effect does it have long-term on a dog? I think it's just a a lot of dependence versus independence. Yeah. So do you think that's an indicator with a puppy? Because that's been my experience. I've raised a bunch of puppies, and the ones that don't cry in the crate, much young, tend to be more independent dogs when they grow up. Going back to my original assessment of Mando when we went to get him, We were watching him and, well, there were other puppies that were coddling around our feet or clinging together. Mm. He was very happy to grab something, you know, like a little toy or a sod of earth or something like that. Like he grabbed like a chunk of earth just out of the ground and went off and sat in the corner and started chewing on it while Mm. the other puppies were sort of close to each other. Now, I do like some dependence, 
And he is like, he loves to come over and play with you. And he loves interacting. He's great at fetching stuff. Like you throw something, he'll go get it. He'll bring it back and he'll put it in your lap. Mm-hmm. Macho, even as a baby, even though he'd bring things back to you, he would like to play keepings off early on, mm-hmm. which annoys me. I don't like that sort of stuff mm-hmm. where Mando will bring it over and say, now fight me for it. Mm. I love that sort of thing. So even though he's got a, like a strong component of independence and we saw that he is a little pup, he still loves to play with you and he loves to be included in things. Yeah. But there'll be times where you'll go, okay, well, fuck you. I'm ready just to go over here and do my thing, mm. which is good because I don't want to entertain him all the time and then have to be at his beck and call all the time. I like him to have, you know, yeah. like when I'm ready to have time apart from him that I'm not sitting there entertaining him. And, he, and he's good with that and I'm good with that. It's like he's got an old head on very young shoulders. Mm. It's amazing to watch him, but he's also a Rottweiler. And Rottweilers yeah. are different than shepherds and different than males. Yeah, yeah. You know, where they get really edgy and really, they can get really panicky about those sort of things. Roddicks can be a lot more chill about it. Mm. Whereas, you know, I remember when Randy was a young pup, and Randy's a great dog. Like, I love, he's the king. I love him. You'd get Randy and you'd hold him for a cuddle, and he'd last for about five seconds before he'd start literally shitting the bed and going bananas over it. Yeah. yeah. Whereas Mando will come over and he'll lie on top of you and he'll just go, oh, rub my guts. Yeah. You know, yeah like, yeah. he's just. He's sitting there with his legs up in the air like a little tart going, yeah, yeah, I'll just fall asleep right here. This is great. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that that crate training, that crying in the crate, all of that, man, I've ebbed and flowed on how I do that, you know, with so many different dogs. Mm. But it's a really interesting case study as well. Like with the, the two shepherds, Fred and Frank, Frank took to the crate really quick, was quiet pretty quickly and grew up to be a very independent I wouldn't say aloof, but he works for the reinforcers and the reinforcers are the ball or the food or whatever. And like, he's a, yeah, he's a shepherd. He enjoys to be pat and cuddled and he's affiliative and all that kind of stuff. But his brother, Fred was a motherfucker to crate train and exact same system in the exact same house. Everything's done exactly the same and took several weeks before he was quiet in the crate. Mm. But Grew up to be a, a very affiliative dog and not problematically like dependent, but Jazz is now talking to his handler now he's in the police quite a lot and they had a conversation about reinforcer and the pointy end of the conversation was it doesn't matter what you're reinforcing with, you're the reinforcer. Mm. The fact that you're interacting with him, he didn't give a shit. You can pick up a leaf and throw that around with oh, him. He and, wants that. Yeah, so yeah. long as you have it and it's interaction with you, that's all that actually is reinforcing to him. Mm. Whereas his brother is like... Like, no, you better have the ball. If you're going to ask me to do something, you better have the ball to pay me at the end. Whereas Fred, you know, and so in the training of Frank, you had to be really careful of that. Like he had to always believe there was something in it for him, right? Like that's just the kind of dog he was. Mm. Whereas his brother was like, so long as you're doing it with me, I'm in, Mm. right? So long as we're doing this together, let's do this together. So Really interesting how that sort of played out over the long term. And Remy's quite similar in that, you know, he was a very easy puppy, very easy, mm. by, especially by Mally standards. Holy shit, he was easy. Yeah, I remember um, him as a little baby. He was, uh, man, he was so easy and, yeah. and quiet in the crate all the time mm. and never once shit in the house. Like just a really easy little puppy mm. and has grown to be a fairly aloof dog in the house. Like, so he doesn't follow me around, you know what I mean? Like he goes wherever he wants to go off and don't know where he is. Like he's very independent. Whereas, you know, like other Mallies that I've had, you know, they follow you everywhere you go. They, they follow you around. Like mm. they stick to you like glue. I think there's a long-term correlation to that, but very anecdotally, right? Like just from what I've observed and the puppies that I've raised, certainly have noticed that. There is a strong comparison in it. And um, I guess to answer this person's question holistically, like if somebody who wasn't interested in sports or in 
working dogs, which I am, and that's why I chose Mando. If, for argument's sake, that somebody came to me and said, I don't want any of that, I just want a puppy, there are other dogs in that litter, which I would have said, absolutely. Like, mm-hmm. there were there were a couple of dogs there that I said to Lisa, you know, like, tell me about this dog. And she said, as a pet, he'd be great. He's not what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Narelle and I, we spent half a day with Lisa just looking at the puppies and playing in the front yard with them. And she was right on the money. She had studied these puppies independently and was being very realistic about it. She wasn't blind to her own litter of puppies, which can be a problem with breeders sometimes. They can become so blind to their puppies, like there's nothing wrong with them and they're all amazing and every single one of them is going to turn out to be this amazing working dog. Like I've literally been to people's places before where I've done puppy assessments for them. And I've worked off – early in the days, I used to work a lot on the Volhard system. Mm-hmm. I remember one litter of puppies, I went there and I screwed up a newspaper and the sound of me screwing up the newspaper made all the puppies run and hide behind the couch. Mm-hmm. They said, what's that? And I said, that's not good. Mm. That's really not good that they're that afraid of just the rustling of newspaper. Yeah, They were very ginger to come back out. You know, like they were making little whimpering noises. Like I had to do a lot of coaxing. To what get breed were they? Golden Retrievers. Yeah, okay. I had to do a lot of real coaxing to get them to come back out. They said to me, oh, that's good, right? And I said, well, not really, that mm. it took that amount of work to get them back out. And even when they came back out, they were in conflict about it. Their tails were tucked down. I just said, look, I kind of really don't want to do any more right now because I, I'm worried that mm. this is going to have an impact on them. Like, it could be today. I don't know. It could be today. But really, I'd love to see a lot more strength in this. And they said, oh, yeah, but they'll be really good as pets. And I said, that's the problem. Allow me to speak freely. And I said, you're you're paying me for this. I need to talk to you freely about this. And I need to talk to you confidently that I'm not doing this to upset you or get in a conflicting situation between ourselves. And I said, but this is not ideal in a pet situation because if dogs are this afraid and they're struggling this much, I said, if this extends into adulthood, this is where you get fear biting from. Yeah. These dogs are not well equipped to handle any social situation and they'll be afraid and they'll either try and run or they'll bite. Yeah. And I said, what I'm looking for is boldness, confidence, even in pets. I don't necessarily want all the dogs in the litter to be hanging off because I was watching something online the other day with all these Mally puppies that were like literally every single one of them was hanging off a guy's pants, which is great. That's great for working dogs. There are a couple that were disinterested in walking around, which you would probably keep an eye on and disclude them from the high intensity that you require. But all puppies bite and all puppies love chewing and they all love mouthing. But when there is high degrees of sensitivity there, there's really no arousal to any fun stuff. Yeah. You know, they're all running away from it. Then I'm saying to myself, this is something that needs to be constantly checked from this point onwards. Yeah. And you know what I think the issue with, and golden retrievers are a good example, but typical of a lot of what is mostly a pet dog, right? So there's show golden retrievers, of course, but for the most part, people are getting a golden retriever to have an awesome pet, mm. right? And certainly it's a goal of mine one day to have one. They're beautiful dogs, amazing yeah. temperaments. Birdie's getting one. She's a golden retriever. That was a lab. I'm pretty sure it's a golden retriever. Mm. It's either a lab or a golden a retriever. Yeah. Yeah. But one of the things that people really like about those kinds of dogs is they're very submissive, right? Like, and they're very, they offer a lot of appeasement behaviors, mm. which humans have been conditioned to like to yep. see. I don't, but a lot of people like those appeasement behaviors. They want to substitute baby. Yeah. And I think that the mental state that allows a dog to bring on those appeasement behaviors is kind of a like a left or a right turn between appeasement and aggression. Mm. And I think that's one of the issues that you get with those sort of thinner nerved pet dogs and people go, well, they're just pets. Like that's fine if they have thin nerves and mm. they're submissive dogs. And it's like, yeah, but if they perceive something as a threat, 
and they go for submission, their perception of the threat doesn't change. They're at the bottom of the scale already. Mm. They're really only left with going up the scale. Therefore, what presented initially as submission can very quickly become aggression. And then you've got a nervy, fear-biting dog. So that's kind of the issue with it. And I think the opposite happens as well. Like you look at, we spoke about before, a lot of showline shepherds, they get spooked and they go for aggression early. Mm. And then you can totally manage that by just going like, hey, you're a puppy. No one's scared of you. You're eight weeks old. And then they go for submission and they like, or not submission, but appeasement. Mm. And then you can end up with a really amazing Dog. Sweet dog. Yeah. So I think that those first interactions with those thin nerves dogs are so important. I think people overlook that. And and you're dead right that even in the temperament testing, sometimes the test determines the outcome. Mm-hmm. You know? It's one of the things I often talk about with it's why I, you know, I'm pretty vocal about working dogs being a bit older than they typically are, is because the test can determine the outcome very often. If if you you fail the test, then you think of yourself as a failure of the test and that is a determinant of your life going forward. Whereas if you're just given more opportunity to prepare for the test, maybe you would pass it, right? But I've seen that plenty of times. Dogs that are put through a rigorous selection at say 10 months old and don't do well, not only are they then thought of as a dog that can't do well, but they think of themselves or the, I'm not sure that's the right with terminology, they have caused then to act away as a dog that is a giver up or up because that's what would have happened on their test. They would have faced a level of pressure that meant that they quit and then that would have been the determinant that says, oh, they're not suitable. But at eight months old, maybe he wasn't ready for that level of pressure, but now he thinks that the way out of that level of pressure is to quit and that mm. determines him. You know, he, he zigged instead of zagging, whereas if you left him till he was 18 months old maybe he would be ready to endure that level of pressure and be more suitable to pass or, mm. or more suitable for service. So I think that's always, you know, interesting. I think especially with young pet dogs, if they don't have great nerves, their first experience of being uncomfortable is very important. Like the outcomes of, of their behavior, their first time being uncomfortable can, can really determine the way that they'll act when they're uncomfortable for the rest of their lives. Interesting listening to you talking about that because it's just jogged my memory back to an experience with the AFP during the week we were there. There was a dog that was on the course that I originally saw him a couple of years ago Uh when we we were first there, and I didn't really think much of this dog at all. He was really unenthusiastic. His drive was low. His ability to train was a bit wishy-washy. And some of the guys came up to me and said, what do you think of this dog? And I said, right now, not much. I'll be honest with you. If he doesn't improve from here, I would consider washing him off. Mm-hmm. And I said, he's not really enthusiastic and he's like, there's just a lot of traits that are required for this job and the importance of the role that this dog isn't showing me right now. Well, mate, I love being proven wrong in these situations mm-hmm. because present day, went back this year just now and saw him. He's amazing. Yeah. But a couple of the contributing factors that have to be considered here was that when I originally saw him, he was moving a lot between handlers. Like Uh he wasn't really getting any dedication to what he was doing. And that wasn't the handler's fault. One of the handlers at the time was sick and couldn't continue his training. So he'd been moved around quite a bit. Seeing him present day, absolutely amazing. He was the student of merit on the course. Yeah, right. So much so that they were looking at moving him into one of the regional areas and the handler came up to me and said, I've got a choice between two dogs. One of them was this dog and another dog. And I said, that dog all day long. Mm. I said, take him. I said, he's really come up. He's strong. He's powerful. Just a maturity thing, you think? Maturity thing and a handling thing, like a consistency thing. Kirsto, the guy I was telling you before, he'd taken over his training. Kirsto's a really good trainer. He's very switched on. Like he listens to a lot 
uh, to our podcast. He's really, oh, he's amazing now. I love him. Yeah, he's great. Like he, but he really, <laughs> he's very progressive. Like yeah, he, right, yeah, yeah. he understands that you can't be locked in one system. There are like a lot of considerations mm-hmm. that need to take place. You can see his influence. Like he's helping to change things, which are really having a big impact on where these dogs are going. Mm-hmm. And it's great. It's the only way all of us can progress in our own training by realizing there is no set pattern. Mm. You've got to be considerate of everything and you've got to be willing to change midstream if that's what's required to get the best out of the dog. Yeah. And it's great to see people in the agencies doing that. Mm-hmm. Like you're seeing it a bit in some of the people that you're dealing with oh, for sure. having influence with you. For and sure. I'm seeing it. And I'm so happy for them because they're doing what needs to be done in order to get the best for what they need to get. Yeah. It's like that saying, if you always do what you always did, you always get what you always got. Mm-hmm. And if you don't break that pattern, you're locked into a very miserable system. Yeah. But if you do break that pattern and you can have some foresight to see what needs to be done, then you reap the benefits for what you're going to get in the future. Seeing that, like I said, I love seeing examples of things where I'm wrong about an initial assessment. Like I was initially worried about this dog, but I hadn't considered all of the considerations of in-between handlers, not getting enough um, constant direction. And with that, the dog benefited immensely. Like Mm. he really came leaps and bounds beyond what I thought he was capable of doing. People have said to me before, does that get you riled up? Like, are you disappointed when things like that happen? I said, the opposite. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to see a dog progress into a working role to live its best life. And the dog is so happy. You watch him work, he's, his enthusiasm levels, like he loved it. He was having an absolute ball doing his work. Yeah, I love seeing stuff like that. There are times where you'll miss the mark initially, and this is why snapshots aren't necessarily a good way to determine a dog's total future. Mm. There have been times, like we were talking about these puppies before, where I've gone and done assessment tests, where I've said to people, and I did with these golden retriever breeders, I said to them, I'd like to come back on another day because it might just be the day. And it's usually the seventh week on the knocker that the Volhard test requires you to go around and look at these puppies. It's within the window of the critical period of development. It's sometimes the best level of maturity. It's a week before they go into their new homes. I actually love puppies at seven weeks old. Yeah, seven weeks is the number. Seven weeks is the magic number. Like eight weeks, I think they go through their first freaky time. Yeah, it's odd that eight weeks got named as the time to take them. Seven weeks is for sure. Seven weeks is great. Like puppies are so receptive and open at seven weeks and they're not going through that, holy shit, who am I? What am I? It's like that internal question you ask yourself, like, who am I and what am I doing and what's going on in the world? I think personally, for me, that's a better time for the puppy to be with people that it cares about, it trusts, it knows its environment. If I'm feeling a bit weak, it's okay because I'm with people who get me and understand me and so forth. Let me read you something, right? So there's this app, it's called Wonder Weeks, and it's like a baby app, right? Mm. And you put in the date of birth of your kid and it basically is like talks about their development. Yep. And it's terrifyingly accurate. Wow. And to the day, you can kind of calibrate it a little bit. Like it might be off by a couple of days the first time and then every other sort of thing will be on the money. And where life is hard at my house at the moment because we're in what they call a leap, right? Yep. So right now, Axel's in, he's right in a leap. So the calendar, two days ago, we were in where they have a little storm cloud. It's yep. like, this is the worst part of your life. And then we're, <laughs> we're coming out the other side. Yep. But what's happening with him at the moment is he's in like what they call a sequencing leap. So he's starting to understand sequences, yep. right? And he can basically understand this leads to that is basically what's happening to him. And there's this post on the Wonder Weeks Instagram. The poster says, imagine suddenly everything around you is different. It's evening. You go to bed. 
You know what your room looks like, where your lamp is, where your closet is, where the other rooms in the house are. You know how everything smells and you know all the sounds in and around the house. You know that you have two arms, two legs, and you know how the rest of your body works. In short, you know how the world you live in works. The next morning you wake up and everything is completely different. You don't recognize anything anymore. It's like waking up in a different room, in a different house with different sounds and different smells. Your body doesn't work the way you were used to either. And you want to ask for help, but you can't. And it goes on, right? It explains this is what's happening to your kid in the leap because they're horrendous little fuckers. Mm. And this basically explains like it's first of all, it's outside of their control and they're terrified. Mm. It's super interesting. And I know people used to have to raise kids without this app that told you this is what they're going through because to the date, he fell apart and went from sleeping through the night to barely sleeping at all, wakes up screaming all the time, is difficult to be around. We're on no sleep, but we know there's an end to this because we've got the app and it says like, no, you're coming out the other side of it. But it triggered me to think of it when you're saying seven weeks is better than eight weeks. Mm, In my opinion. Yeah. But those same things have to be happening to a puppy's brain. Absolutely. But we don't know the schedule. We don't know. We haven't done the research. There's no way to sort of measure all that kind of stuff as as accurately and as well as they have put the time into humans. Mm. And so I think that's one of the really interesting things when we talk about development and assessment of puppies is they fucking change. Absolutely. Like a lot. Yes, so rapidly too. Yeah, and you brought up so well that Lisa gave you a really accurate assessment of the dogs because Mm. she's seeing them every day. And I think one of the things, like a lot of people send me video and they're like, hey, which puppy do you think I should choose? I'm like, I haven't got a fucking clue. Like from that video, I I can tell you what I like from that video, Mm. but that's not determinant of anything other than what was happening in that 15 seconds, right? And that's not determinant of of what those puppies will be like 15 seconds after that video either. Mm. I think the only way to really know what a puppy is like is to, you know, take in the totality of his experience over the, the you know, the duration of his life to that point. The breed is the only one that can give an accurate assessment of that. They're the only ones that see them that well, that much. Well, the good thing about that is that exactly that we asked Lisa to keep a keen eye on the pups because I just said what I'm looking for is the most amount of consistency mm-hmm. and I said because there are so many ebbs and flows and what's going to happen from this point onwards yeah. like what I really need to say is who is the most consistent I think it was five weeks it was still Mando six weeks Mando seven weeks Mando it was just him all the time Every time that she was putting these difficulties and these challenges in his way, Mando was the one who was just knocking him over all the time. Mm -hmm. But let me say that she did have some absolutely fantastic little females in that litter as well that Mm -hmm. I would have considered taking. Mm -hmm. There were some little crackers in that litter. And to be honest, the entire litter was toughened because she'd put difficulty and scarcity in their way. And they had to learn, not in an unpleasant way, they loved what she was doing. You Mm -hmm. could just see these little pups thriving. And more people need to take a leaf out of their book. I was talking about Neville Bennett before. He did exactly the same sort of mm-hmm. thing. I remember once he took a litter of puppies when he was going up to Queensland and yeah, you know, like right. he was stopping yeah. at the beach and letting them run around and yeah. jump in the surf and all sorts of stuff when they were seven weeks old. And there were people saying, oh, it's fucking irresponsible. What about Parvo and everything like that? Neville went, oh, fuck you. You know, like, <laughs> which, which is <laughs> like Neville does. He's, yeah. he's great with things like that. But I appreciate people doing shit like that. You know, yeah, like yeah. I worked very hard myself when I was breeding puppies to replicate those same sort of things and to provide levels of pressure and difficulty for puppies because I knew early on how important it was. I might not have been able to put it into words as well as what I can now mm. and understand exactly why what was happening was so beneficial. But 
our pups were getting anything I could think of, introducing them to all our dogs, got to meet them. And Mando does this now. Like he's meeting Randy and Macho and you do the same. Like a lot of good people who raise dogs know how to do all this and, you know, the importance of it. He's been to Bunnings a bunch of times now. He's been running around in the store until I got kicked out because uh, you're supposed to have them in trolleys. Oh, yeah. um, that was fun. I had him in the trolley the other day. People are coming up and patting him and the girls gave him a little fleur vest to wear. So he's been doing a bunch of shit. Yeah. We sit down and watch trucks on the road and we I just let him have a little moment where he gets a little scared. Yeah. He runs back to me and I just ignore him and I wait for him to show boldness and confidence and mark him for all the, the, mm-hmm. the attributes that I want to generate as he's getting older. Mate, he still might not turn out to be the perfect dog. He still might not because he's young. He's got building blocks in place. He's got really great attributes now, but he can change. And I've seen that happen before where you're just thinking, what the fuck happened? Mm. Where did it go? It's like it just dissipated into the ether suddenly. And this was the frustration of the super dog program and other programs like this is they were just wondering what the fuck is happening here. Yeah, it's not you necessarily know, determinate. Right, because all the building blocks will be there. All the drive will be there. But that's the puppy drive. That's the enthusiasm of youth. It yeah. needs to sustain into adulthood. If you're talking about working dogs, of course. Even pets. You Even see pets. them radically change after teething. Yes. Yeah, I think for sure. I've seen really strong puppies go to water after teething, and I've seen some pretty ordinary puppies turn quite good after teething. Yep. So I think in choosing a puppy, the truth is you're kind of throwing a dart at a board and hoping no matter what. Oh, this is a crap stable game. Yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's plenty you can do to mm. mitigate you know, and say, well, you're reducing risk, but the risk is always there. The risk is there. All you've got to do is just provide provide a solid foundation for that pup to get everything that, that you can literally control mm. in order for that dog to develop great foundations by exposing it to so many different environments, safe mm. environments, of course. But while we're talking about safe, it's like Jordan Peterson says, you want kids to do dangerous things safely. Yeah. You dangerous know? things carefully. Yeah, yeah. Dangerous things carefully. And that's what I'm doing with my puppies. I'm doing, you know, because people have said to me, oh, you're not supposed to take them out. You're not supposed to do all these things. And I said, I'm not taking him to environments which are littered with dog piss and shit. You know, like I'm not taking him to those unsafe environments. I'm taking him to all the safe environments I possibly can. Like I've got a lot of considerations on where he can be. Yeah. And people are kind of looking at, no, 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 the vets tell you this. The vets are suggesting, they're not saying you must. There is no law that I know of that says you can't take them out. Yeah. The vets are covering their ass. They're doing the things that they're being told to do. Risk mitigation. So vets are suggesting providers of the vaccine are telling us that it's not fully effective until the dogs are X amount of age. But that subsequently coincides with the critical period of development yeah. ending at that time as well. Yeah. So that's a crap dice roll as well. Like if you want to leave your dogs at home, if you want to do that, well, you've got to understand that the world is unknown to the puppies yeah. where to Mando, it's not, it's yeah. not unknown. He's been in the car. He's been for rides. He's been to the vets. He's traveled all around the place. He's done stuff. And again, you know, like I'm, it's, I'm having this conversation with you and it's like telling you how to suck an egg because you're doing it all the time. You're <laughs> encouraging people to do it all the time. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You're living that life. Jazz is living that life, raising these little male puppies and the the shepherds before that. Like I see videos of her up at five o'clock in the morning, trudging the puppies through wet, muddy fields, taking them to places where it's a little uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but teaching the puppies it's okay. Going yeah. up escalators, all of that shit. It's great. Anybody who's doing that stuff, you are a champion. Well, you know, 
I think we've talked about socialization a million times, but it's, I, it's so important. Recently, I've realized the terminology is what you want to do is normalize everything to the puppy. That's what you're trying to do is just generalize or normalize. normalize. Just yeah. be like, this is life, man. Yeah. This is what happens to you. This is just yeah. totally normal. And so, you know, like those dogs with jazzers raising, they'll have to track through wet ground and all that kind of shit before too long. Yeah. So as puppies, you just take them out there and play in it. Yep. It's like, hey, this is normal. This is what this you'll is just life. do. This just this is a place you go and these are things that you do. This is yep. just this is who you are. And they're like, got it. I'm totally impressionable to everything right now. This is who I am. Yep. It's open to it. Yep. Hey, so Chrissy actually says it's temperament test puppies versus adult dogs. So we've talked a lot about puppies. And I think the adult dogs part, I think the difference between the temperament test of a puppy and temperament test of an adult dog is it is who it is at that point. Oh, yeah. So you can really test an adult dog. I think once a dog gets to around about 18 months of age to 24 months of age, it's well and truly aligned on who it's going to be. Yeah. It's the same thing when you talk about the responsibilities of kids at 18 versus, you know, like let's say, for example, legal drinking age in Australia is 18. Mm -hmm. In the States, it's 21. When you listen to neurologists talking about the development of brains and so forth, they literally say like your prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed and hasn't reached maturity until you're about 26, 27 years of age. Mm. So there are a lot of changes that's going on. So even, and I mean, I know this for myself, like I remember the way I behaved at 18, I was still like a teenager because Mm. effectively you are a teenager with voting rights, driving rights, drinking rights. Like you can do all the things that yep. an, an adult cool can. cool guy stuff. But, at, you know, like at 26, I was looking at things that I was doing at 18 thinking, oh, that wasn't cool. Mm. You know, like that was pretty stupid. And I was looking at investing in houses and doing, you know, like other things that didn't seem the same. You know, like I still wanted to do cool guy stuff and have fun and stuff like that. But you change, like your mentality changes. Yep. And every decade I think that goes on in life, I think I saw Joe Rogan have a a mention of this himself and it says it's a shame that it takes so long to become wise when you finally become so old. But I think, so, you know, to speak specifically about temperament testing adult dogs, Mm. I think the thing is if you're getting an adult dog, you have a purpose for the dog. Like, you know what it's going to be. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. I like that. my advice to people temperament testing adult dogs, because, you know, I've done a ton of it and I don't enjoy it as much because – I think you just put the dogs in the situations that it's going to need to face. You're going to need it to face. So you just take it there. Yep. And the trick is being able to read the dog. I think that like where people go wrong with temperament testing is misreading the way the dog reacts to the situations that they put them in. And I think that, you know, you see this a lot, like real common rescue dog story is the dog was great for four weeks and then became reactive, aggressive, whatever, after that four weeks. And it's like, that didn't happen overnight. And the signs that that was going to happen were there from the start. Mm. You just didn't read it. And, and I think that the dog came into the house and was nervous, submissive, that kind of stuff. And you just thought that's kind of who he was. But he was showing you the behaviors that were going to show that aggression was going to come, but it just wasn't obvious. And so I think that's one of the things I think is the key. People who can really test adult dogs really their premium skill set is being able to read the dog and really determine how the dog feels early. And one of the reasons, like I say, I've done heaps of adult dog testing, but I don't really enjoy it because I think you got to put those dogs in uncomfortable situations mm. and, and every now and again you, you go too far, right? And that happens all the time, certainly willing to, not all the time, it's happened enough times that I'm certainly willing to admit that. And that's my, my issue with testing working dogs young is that you're like, hey, like I want to find where you quit and I don't want you to quit ever but I've got to find the limit where I can see it coming. Mm. And then you get, you know, especially if you're testing a dog for someone else, they're like, oh, he did great. And it's like, well, 
He didn't really because I could tell that he was a, an inch away from giving up and I don't want him to give up. I don't want that to happen but to I him. But I just pulled the pin before it went through. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I've stopped it because I could tell that the grip was loosening and things like that. And then people were like, no, he did great. And it's like, well, he didn't. All the signs were there. Please don't. Push me any further. Yeah, I don't, I'm not. I mean, I don't. I just say to people, I'm not doing it. Like, I'm not the guy that's going to show you the, the flaws in the dog. I know that they're there. I can explain to you where they are. I've pushed to the crevice of it. I'm not tearing it open. And the reason I'm not tearing it open is because I have by accident in the past. And I've, mm. I've have done it with dogs. And then I'm like, oh, fuck. I've given this dog a bad experience and I have to recover him from here. And that, yeah, that's not just in biting dogs, like in working dogs. That's in everything. That's you in gotta, obedience. That's yeah, in socialization. In, in yeah. every dog. You want to get to the point where you're like, oh, I see you have an issue. Mm. Right. And, and not create a worse issue because the thing is when the dog hits that problem point, the thing that's going to make for you say, well, you know, he's not the dog that I'm looking for. No matter what application he's going into, if as a trainer, depends on where your ethics lie, right? So like if I'm just there to assess the dog, there's plenty of people that are like, oh, now your dog's a steaming pile of poop. Good luck, right? Whereas for me, I can't do that. So if it gets to the point where the dog has a problem and I go, oh shit, there's the problem. And now I have to recover this dog. Like Mm. I have to fix this issue because I just caused it. And it's not the dog's fault. Like I was trying to find his limit and I accidentally hit the limit instead of identifying that I was approaching it. And so I think that's the skill set in temperament testing an adult dog is really being able to read a dog. And I think that's where people should invest all their time, money, and energy effort into really learning how to read a dog if you're going to be a tester of dogs. No, mm. don't learn how to do the test. Do the test is easy. Whatever mm. whatever you're going to do. you'll like. And if it's an adult dog, it's got a purpose, put it straight into that. Like whatever that thing you're need, going to need it to do, put it at the entry level of that thing and see how it performs. But truly try and read the dog and assess like, okay, we don't have to finish the test. We don't have to push to the dog shows me that it doesn't like it. If I can read early enough that the dog doesn't like it, then he's not suitable for whatever it is I'm assessing. Mm. Or I can say, you know, he's going to need help. He's going to need, he's going to be need to be helped through this, whatever it is. And I think that's applicable from whether you're getting a rescue to be a pet or whether you're in a working dog kennel looking to buy your next working dog, I think, and and everything in between. Mm. I think that the key is to learn to read dogs as well as possible. And that's hard man like that and and i think unfortunately i think the only way to do that is lots of experience yep you know one of the dirty truths of learning to read a dog is that the only way to know when like what a dog looks like before it hits too much pressure is to have put it through too much pressure i think that's one of the sort of unfortunate sides of it is that that's just how it goes that's how you learn it's amazing that you actually said that because while you were giving that sage advice out i was thinking of the only way you can make an omelet is to break some eggs yeah that was coming to the forefront of my mind the entire time because I'm thinking, yeah, the only way to get experience is by being experienced. Yeah. And Matt, I think, you know, to tie it all back to the start, and we've got to wrap up soon, but I think this ties into one of the reasons why I think negative reinforcement and that style of training is so unpalatable to people is because to be good at it, you need to have know where's the limits of mm. how to use it. And unfortunately, the truth is you find the limits by going past them every now and again. That's the truth. And you're like, we're not talking about killing dogs, but we're talking about like sometimes some dogs have a bit of a bad experience. And the thing is like, I can teach you how to use positive reinforcement. And if you make a ton of mistakes, the truth is you just end up with a dog that doesn't learn the thing or you teach it something else, Mm. right? And positive reinforcement is a double-edged weapon. You Like every problem behavior any dog's ever had is because of positive reinforcement, right? Like that's how it got to that point, or reinforcement Mm. at the least. 
But with using tools of compulsion and tools of pressure, the truth is sometimes by accident go like, oh shit, that was too much. You go over threshold. Yeah. Or not necessarily over threshold, but you go like, oh, that didn't have the effect that I wanted. Mm. And now the dog feels a certain way and it's going to be much more difficult to change the way that he feels. Mm. That's the truth, right? Like that's just a fact. Mm. In line with what you were just talking about before with people who are looking for those type of dogs for applications, it's a time that requires openness and honesty. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of that that needs to be on each side. The person who has the investment in the dog and the person who's carrying out the assessment, there needs to be open and honest conversations about that from both sides. Like sometimes I think there's a lot of wishful thinking from the person who's going to take on the dog, that they want the dog to succeed at all costs, that they're willing to look past these flaws and traits. Mm Mm-hmm. That for me has been an upsetting situation in the past where, like you saying, no, I don't want to push past this dog doesn't possess the qualities and the capabilities of going further into this. No more one more time principle comes into a lot of these discussions as well. Even though that's more about stable dogs, we can still apply it in these sort of situations because you're going, guys, if I do one more now, I'm literally going to put the dog into a head spin or tail spin. It's literally going to bottom out over this experience. So, we're not going to do this. We're not going to go any further. This is it. That We've reached the end. Yeah. You know, if you're thinking that this dog is capable as an experienced person who knows who's seen this, as you said, you know, like you have to have experience in it. I've seen this before. I've had experience. This dog is not what you want for this application. For these things, it'll be fine. But to push it into this area would be unkind. Yeah. Mate, I've been pretty vocal about that in the working dog world for mm. a while. And there was a video years ago that got around of a guy testing this dog and it wasn't a great dog and it panicked and he had it backed in a corner and like was, he didn't hurt the dog, but really backed it down. Mm. And I was like, you know, you're a tough guy. Cause the dog did engage initially and then let go. And I was like, let's redo that test without your fucking bite suit on mate. Like, yep. because you did get tagged. And I'd like to see whether, like, how you reacted to that initial bite, right? Because you acted like nothing happened and then you backed the dog into the corner. Whereas, like, you did get bitten. And I'm curious to see what would happen if you if got bitten. For yeah, I'd mm. see who's crying in the corner after yeah. that because I'm not so sure that you it, it would be the dog. Mm. Anyway. Whew, Conversations for another day. Yeah. Yep. All right. Hey, that's it. That's it. Another episode. Yep. Can on Paradigm. Mm-hmm. All done. Yep. Us whinging at the start. Yeah, we should make a pact for anyone that's actually listening. No whinging about tool bands at the start of the next episode. Oh. We should do it. I know well, we try. Well, it depends what happens next week when <laughs> we get information. From- Who knows what madness could <laughs> unfold throughout the week? We'll make that promise now. Okay, and then okay. during the week, the APDT Shit's will be gonna like, change. hold my beer, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're not going to complain about it? Well, watch this. Kirsty, Brittany, Marsha. You have our unparalleled thank you. I'm going to make you guys trophies. I'm a, yeah, you, know, I'm a, you deserve let's, them. Let's do it with our Patreon money. Yep. Let's get some sort of cool recognition award for those guys with our Patreon money. Yeah, okay. I'm happy to do that because, look, I know that nothing is certain, but what they did do is they tried their best. Yep. And you can't ask any more of anybody than trying your best. Yep. And they certainly have done that. Yep. I'm going to get them like a, a plaque of some kind yeah. and we'll name them Heroes of the Dog World. Yep. Done. <laughs> Yeah. I'm doing it. Yeah, do it. Yeah. From Pat England. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I, I, I concur. I absolutely support it. Let's do it. Hey, before we do wrap up entirely, just yes. before we go, season three of The Boys. I need to watch it. You need to watch it. I know you and I have been watching The Boys over the years. Season yeah. three is going off like a firecracker. It's, yeah. it's upsetting people already. Like there is a scene in season one that which I'm not going to tell you because I want you to experience it yourself. But I have a question for you. What would you be like if you had the powers of Homelander? That's what's interesting about it, mate. That's what's super interesting. And that's why 
I, although the movie didn't turn out to be anywhere near as good as I'd hoped, that Christopher Nolan's Superman is like really interesting. The first one in mm. that it, because it's like, why did he become Superman? Mm. Like it's and it's because of his father, because of Jonathan Kent. Yeah, it's yeah. his dad, and yeah. made sure that he turned good. Yeah, and that's what's super interesting in the boys with Homelander, like. In the story, the good guy is the good guy because he's like so altruistic and whatever, but why? In that movie, the Christopher Nolan, The Man of Steel, I think it was, yeah. um, that scene where Kevin Costner, who played Jonathan Kent, stopped him from using his powers and keeping everyone in the cave while he died in the tornado, man, that was confronting. And mm. I felt a lot of feels over that. Yeah. And Henry Carville, who played Superman in that, even the expression on his face and just the sheer terror, like he knew he could run out there at the speed of sound and and Mm. save his father. But, oh, man, that was a fucking horrible scene. Like that was really fucked up. I had to pause the movie at that time and have a little (laughs) moment because it was pretty bad. Yeah, it's full on. It is. And I was watching the boys and I was thinking, what would I be like if I was Homelander, if I had that ability to laser someone in half? with my eyes who ever pissed me off. And you're immortal. And like, you're so immortal. You're a god. You're a god. Yeah. And there's another movie that predicts that of like an anti-hero called Brightburn mm-hmm. of a kid who is like literally the same as Superman, mm. except he goes rogue very early and starts fucking things up. Mm. It's interesting. I think you're right. And this is why it, it's all relevant to the socialization of puppies and habituation and ultimately generalization, which we've been talking about because that has a massive input oh. into who you become long-term. Totally. Homelander is just an, like, he is just a psychopath. Yeah. Like well, is, literally. Yeah. Literally. He is just a crazed, super narcissistic psychopath. And he knows that he's just longing to be loved and desired from people, but also knows that he can drop the fucking ball at any time. And, yeah. and, he, and in season three, He's pretty much come to terms with that. Like he pretty much explains, like I could literally fucking light up the world right now, but I prefer not to. Amazing. Yeah. I need to watch it. Yep. All right. That's it for another episode of Canon Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe, do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. Mm -hmm. Then go to another one, do it there, yell it in the streets, spray paint it on a wall. Well, (laughs) (laughs) just do like a really poor graffiti job of it. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is Patreon. Mm. Put some money into there. We're going to buy some trophies for people and just award them as though we have the capacity to do that. I suppose anyone who has money can buy a trophy. If you want to bank us up, that'd be great. Yep. Help us buy cool trophies for people. Yep. The other way is buy some merch. Yes. Maybe we should get Heroes of the Dog World (laughs) (laughs) t-shirts. Uh, yeah, anyway, buy some merch, Teespring or Spring. Yep. If you want to get in contact with us, jump into the Facebook discussion group. That's mm. where great conversations happen in there. You could group source some dog information. Keep up to date with everything that's going on. Yep. I've been posting some stuff about seminar stuff and people have been asking me, hey, Pat, have you got a mailing list? And I really should have a mailing list, mm. but I don't. So keep an eye on social media because I'm about to start announcing a couple of things that are happening. So keep an eye there, Social, my, all my socials, Glenn's socials, the show socials. Mm. Norell and I have got a couple of seminars coming up. We've got one in Brisbane with Sue War. So if you're interested you in going along, we've got one in Canberra too for a rescue group. There you go. There's talks about OS seminars as well at some Wonderful. stage. There's shit going on left, right and centre. So we'll keep you all informed. And Cam Ford's coming out here in right. October. So I'm about to put all the details down for that so people can finally book in. I know people have been messaging me saying, please send me deets. I'm about to get event squid or whatever it's called to pump it all out so you can book in, come along and uh, enjoy one of the best trainers in scent detection and that's going to be great. All right, goodbye. Bye.